Now this case today, and probably, I should say, the next few cases coming up are probably going to be two-parters because they're quite extensive cases with quite, quite a lot of material in them and stuff. But today's case, this is the case of this Richard Hucknell. Now, as you've seen by the thumbnail that I've used, I said, you know, um, he's a paedophile that thought he'd never be caught and this sort of stuff. And that's really what he really thought, actually. And that's why I've said that. But the actual title of this video is The Life and Death of a Paedophile. So that's telling you something, isn't it, about how this, the end of this um, case is going to, you know, conclude itself. Um, and so there's important reasons why I want to bring all the case into it. There's some legal issues in here as well. There's some um, new techniques and new technologies that's being used to identify paedophiles online and especially paedophiles like this Richard Hucknell um, that really needed to be caught and needed to be stopped. And the problem is with people like Richard Hucknell is when they're doing this online abuse and they're doing it from overseas and different things and they are posting all this stuff out on the dark web. Even when you catch them, because they are really professionals at what they do, they you know hide their faces, they hide the children's faces. So you have to have some way of identifying them. So actually when they are caught, that you can actually prove it's them. And this case goes into that as well. So it's quite a good case from across the board really it brings into um, a lot of issues in this case but it also brings up what I continue to say about what happens to these people once they go into prison so how this is going to roll I think is on this this video is that we're going to have to do it in two parts because it is so long and to get everything in so this is part one of Richard Hucknell and I suppose you could say he was dubbed the, you know, gap year paedophile. And his reign of terror, I think, um, as a prolific paedophile, um, lasted a decade, really, uh, and before he was caught and um, put in prison for his crimes. So I want to first talk about this. He is an English serial child abuser and child rapist. He is also a distributor of um, indecent images of children um, on the dark web uh, a massive massive um, you know profile really that was took off on online he was prolific at what he was doing he was also designing a paedophile manual and we've heard this before with um, you know other criminals that we've done and other paedophiles that we've talked about um, where they design these manuals and to help other paedophiles um, learn their trade, I suppose, if that's what you'd like to call it. Um, so this man needed to be stopped. But So let's talk about now, any, before anything else, where he started, where he comes from, his background. So Richard Hucknell, now he was born, he is British, and he was born in Ashford in Kent, I think in 1986, 14th of May 1986. Listen, he was born to a middle-class family, a very good family, actually. He was, uh, there was, seemed to be no issues in his childhood. It was said that he was a bit quiet and a bit withdrawn. He didn't have a lot of confidence, that sort of thing, but a lot of kids are like that. 
Um, he had friends and he'd made friends. He was quite intelligent. Um, he had, you know, it was just ordinary, I suppose. There was nothing that stood out about Richard um, that would make you think that he would do this terrible stuff that he had done. Really, there was nothing. There was nothing in his background at all that would make him become this prolific paedophile that he'd become. And how he sort of seen these children, um, there was just nothing really in his background, not anything we can find. Parents were good, upbringing was good, no poverty, you know, no um, real illnesses. There was real nothing that you can say this would have made this man do what he did. I suppose the only other thing you could say that he was privileged in a lot of ways um, with his upbringing. Um, and I think he, he went to these really good schools and you know, it's when you actually really read this case, um, and I've researched everywhere about this man and there really was nothing. He he's, was brought up within the church and different things. He had a good life, good family life. There was nothing. I mean, he was educated in a grammar school. I think it was Harvey Grammar School in um, Folkestone that he was um, schooled in. A really good area. You know, this is a really good school. So, it's, it, you know, he had every chance in life to do what he wanted to do. And I think the, the thing is with him, he thought he could do anything. And uh, he would never get caught. And as we continue now to go through his life, was there signs of him being a paedophile at all? Uh, no, not really. Not that anyone really picked up on and noticed. He was involved in, in the um, church. He was a regular worshipper with his family at this Baptist church. And he was described as a quiet man. Um, he got on well with everyone and he was brought up in this church. You know, so people trusted him, people liked him. And um, no clues at all as to what was going to come only a few years later. So Richard was a member of this Ashford um, Baptist Church, but he was also a member, and I think so was his family, of a church in London. Um, and I think he was actually um, there right up until his arrest, I think, in 2014. And they're coming a little bit later on. So, you know, you know, I'm trying to build you a picture of this boy's life, this middle-class child who wanted for nothing, um, who had a good upbringing, and he was, you know, a regular churchgoer with his family. He enjoyed the church. He loved his experience at the church. And, um, the, the, and when I say there is nothing, there is really nothing. And, you know, usually we look back and we think, was he abused? You know, was there poverty? Was there something else that may have set him off that, you know? No, he was just known as this quiet person. Sometimes could be a bit withdrawn. He was a bit, I think, um, not confident in himself. And um, you'll hear him say that a little bit later on, a little bit different context to what I'm using. Um, and so he, 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 he sort of, he got on in this church and he knew these people in this church and he was brought up in this church and he was brought up in this family. And so the close community people that knew him liked him, trusted him. 
you couldn't believe that this man would do what he had done. So whether there was signs and people just didn't realise there were signs, or was there really no signs at all? It's very difficult to find out because it looks like that everyone that you speak to about him really can't believe what happened. So about the age of 16, through this church, uh, he took this long extended visit to a school in Nambia before leaving this um, Harvey Grammar School and going on I think to, um, I think it was in um, college in uh, South Kent College. So he had gone to Nambia at quite a young age, 16, took this extended holiday, you know, to help build churches or build schools, to help, you know, the communities out there as this long extended part of the growth. And a lot of kids do this, don't they? they? They, before they go on to college or university, they have a gap year. And this was sort of his gap year. And I think this is where it really started because I think what he saw when he went to Nambia and these different places, but especially in Nambia at first, was the, vulnerabil the vulnerability of these children. They would run up to you and, you know, want to um, know you. You were different to them, for one. You had money, which he did. And I think he liked that attention. But they took him to this Nambia, they'd, they'd, you know, as this gap year, he'd done this extended holiday out there, um, you know, before he um, left the school. And I think he realised out there that they live differently than we do. Out there, he seemed to come out of himself. He seemed to feel more confident. He seemed to be the one that people wanted to know because they thought he had money. And these kids and these families live in poverty. So he found this experience very early on to be really intriguing. He really liked feeling like this person of power. He had some control there, stuff that he wasn't really getting in England. He, I don't think he was confident enough in England to be doing anything like that. And so these children, I think he thought were empowering him. They were giving him love, attention, what he saw it as. But they were just inquisitive kids from a very poor background that just thought they was probably going to get something or a bit of chocolate or something, you know, and you're different, aren't you? You go to these countries and you work with these kids who are, you know, impoverished, really. And they are grateful to get anything. It's not like our kids here that have everything. They're not. And I think this is what really started this man off. Something clicked in him. So he would probably have been a paedophile anyway. All right, don't get me wrong, he would have been a paedophile anyway. But I think when he went there for this year's gap, and we don't know really if anything happened in that time, I would probably think it would have, um, he came back a different person. He came back knowing that England was not the place that this man wanted to live. Because I don't think this man felt empowered in England actually probably overpowered you know, uh, you know probably put down a bit he wasn't really able to speak to women 
he, he didn't have that control and that self-confidence that he had out in these other countries because of this money and he was white and you know powerful so he thought this is what he's thinking gave him this self you know this self he was uh, self-worth he was bigger than now than he thought he was and he had made up his mind once he come back that's it I'm gonna do what I've got to do and then I'm going back out to work in impoverished countries with impoverished children and families now we don't know do we what was his, his mind at that point I can assume as we all could I think from from this of what this man ended up doing <clears throat> very very quickly on going to these countries where he thought he could get away with what he did by using people and using the culture of these people to one wind his way in as this English teacher as a person of the church um, making these people believe in him and need him and, and want him but he was there you see just really to abuse these children and it's something I think he learned very early on when he first went to Nambia is that he realised that it's easier for him to get away with it in them countries and these people are haven't got the money to go to the police and prosecute and stuff and I think in his mind he thought that the more poverty you was in the more easier it would be to use your children and that's exactly what he did so Richard William Hucknell he was born the 14th of May 1986 and he actually died on the 13th of October 2019 how he was really caught so he was convicted in this country for sex, serial sex offences against children and, sex, and child rape plus everything else you know and distributing and everything else that goes with that in a very big way he was arrested by the national um, crime agency after a tip-off from the Australian actually police and he was convicted of 71 uh, counts of serious sexual uh, abuse on children whilst working as this freelance photographer out there and he also posed as this Christian teacher uh, in Malaysia um, I think he's been described in the media probably all across the world as the worst ever British paedophile because he was born here now his crimes were committed in other countries and this is where the law changes a little bit down the line and I shall tell you, I will go into that after but his crimes, as we know of, we don't know if any was committed here we just don't know that um, but we do know that his crimes were definitely committed in Malaysia and there are some other areas um, overseas that um, are potential as, as well where there is victims of Richards so this case starts then to open up because he was given on the 6th of June um, 2016 uh, given 22 life sentences in this country 
for the crimes that he did. <laughs> and he would be eligible for parole, even though he got all that time. After 25 years, he would have been eligible for parole. Listen, he wouldn't have got it. This man was never going to get out anyway. He wasn't. So really, this is now where we're going to go through this case. Okay, so really, as we go through this case, you know, these are disturbing. People don't like things about paedophiles. They don't like issues about um, offences against children. But I always say, these have to be told. And this case is so relevant today with all the other cases, and the other, especially the case we've just had in 2021, um, that when we talk about online crime against children, and a lot of people say to me, yes, but you know, 99% or 90% of people do it in their own homes to their own children. Yes, I know that. But you see, they're maybe only doing it to one or two children, and they will be caught in the end, hopefully, hopefully, or if it's not now, it'd be historic, because we can't um, stop everyone. But this is what this channel's about, isn't it? Awareness. So one of them kids, one of them, someone may see this and think, this is not right, what's going on here? But the thing is with this man and these sort of paedophiles, they're not doing it to just one child or two children or 10 children or 20 children or 100 children. They're doing it to multiple children multiple and so it's really important that we talk about these online cases now I am going to talk about a domestic case here of sexual abuse and you'll be a bit shocked at the outcome of that when it comes to evidence and stuff when we try to take people to court and trials and stuff so that's going to come into this as well so listen, after leaving school, he then spent this gap year in Malaysia, I think in 2005 to 2006. Don't forget, he'd already spent a long time, um, an extended holiday um, in Nambia. So he'd already realised, hadn't he, that these children were poor, as I said before, you know, impoverished families, people that he thought were so poor that he could manipulate them and use and abuse their children. So now he's gone back now for this gap year, you know, pretending to be this photographer, this Christian teacher, and he's done this year gap year out there, and he's really honed his skills out there now. Without a doubt, in this time period, children were being abused by this man. But whether he'd set up what he, his skills or his, his, in his mind really set out how this was going to, come about um, into such a big thing as what he wanted to make it, um, I think started once then he returned back to Malaysia and really started up then his assault um, on these children and on these um, communities of where this man was actually meant to be helping people. So he'd gone out there to do this photography and everything and then he thought, you know, well, how can you get close to children, really? And and we've said it before, we have a lot of teachers, you know, that train them, and we've said it about lots of, um, even serial killers that I know are trained to be teachers just to get close to their victims as they possibly can, or potential victims. And this is exactly what Richard Hucknall did. He didn't do the full 
English course, but of course when you're teaching English to foreign students out there, he'd just done the certificate in English language um, uh, teacher for adults, for adults. But it got him into the schools, didn't it? It got him into know people. It got him into know people that wanted to learn English. It got him into that society. That then where he met his children with his photography and he made friends. And he had these communities where he lived, quite impoverished communities. And he lived like a king and they lived with very little. So this made him a very popular man. Again, here comes this building himself up to be something really that he wasn't. Because in England, there was no way this man was going to be confident and be doing any of this. But he chose to go there because that's where it made him feel empowered to go to this country where he thought he could do this stuff to these people and get away with it. And let's, listen, let's, let's be honest here. This man done this for 10 years, at least 10 years before he got caught. He was very good at what he done. He was very good at hiding what he done. Not that he hid it from the internet, not that he didn't publicize himself and these children. He just hid their faces. He hid his face. He was really, really trying to provoke people into look at that. He had no problem with putting these images out there because he really thought that he would never be caught. And you know, the thing is with anybody that thinks they're not going to be caught, you are, in the end, you are going to be caught. Because as we, as you try and put swirls on their face, our technology can undo them swirls. When you try to hide your face, there are other parts of your bodies that we now can detect and find out who you are. This man really believed that he would never ever be caught because he was just this powerful man in Malaysia that was overpowering these kids, raping these children. And these children were as young as six months old, up to about 12 years old. This is what this man was doing. Then this man decides, really, when he's out there doing all this stuff, that I want to write a paedophile manual. I want to then build up a profile on the dark web. I'm going to then sell these photos and these images and talk about my experiences to make a living out of it for 10 years. So in Kuala Lumpur, he actually studied for an IT um, course. He didn't finish that course, but I think he did it because he wanted to know how to hide his identity. And so this is where he learned his skills. He only learned things like photography, or like IT, or English, teaching, you know, for his own gain. For his everything was aimed at this man's clear path of being a paedophile in these countries where he actually thought he could get away with it. Everything this man done from the time of this first holiday this first extended holiday, then onto this gap year, and then onto moving out of this country, out of England, so he could pursue this uh, attack on these children. It was all designed for that. Everything this man ever did was designed 
for that. Really, and no one knew for many years. This man was searched and searched and searched for many, many years before the technology that we then had or was designing to override his to find out who these kids are, what this person could look like. And it's so difficult. It was really, really difficult. And, you know, really to this day, it was, and I, you know, we shocked actually how he was really caught and how he was really then admitted what he'd done through the evidence. And it's not the evidence that you're going to think. Really, it's not. So I think in addition to Malaysia, there was Cambodia. There was crimes in Cambodia um, and also Southeast Asia and places like that, um, and including um, Lagos and in India. So you can see this man's mentality. Let's travel to all these countries to where the, and these weren't the countries where you're going to the biggest cities, where you know, you're going to the more poorest towns and villages to get these children because he wouldn't have got away with it in the major cities. So he always went to the, the, the places that really off beaten, off the beaten track. The, not many police, if there was police there, you know, where could these kids complain to? They couldn't, they didn't. Who would believe him? There was no one. And he knew that. So he, he, he planned this. This was well planned, well executed for many, many years this man's crimes for many, many years. And I think because he had this, you know, he was a Christian teacher and he had, he had been to church and he'd been brought up in the church, he understood how the ministers and pastors worked. You know, he'd try and befriend them. You know, and, they'd, and a lot of these places would have orphanages, you see. And this is where he was trying to infiltrate and he did infiltrate them, to tell the truth. He would befriend the pastors or the ministers of these. And of course, they were grateful for his help. He had this skill of English language that he was offering to help them with. He had this camera that he could get their plight of these kids out there, get some awareness out there about what's going on. And he gave his time free, you see. Now, no criminal record either, not that they were checking in this country. Um, that's down, you know, they should have, but they wasn't because most of them couldn't even afford to live, let alone to check to see if you had a criminal record. But he actually had no criminal record in this country either. So, you know, you know he would take photos and videos and, and, and stuff. What seemed like to help these people, but what he was doing then on the other side of it was abusing and filming and photographing children in this orphanage of all ages and again including babies. This man was a shocking, shocking man. So we have now this man that had been living permanently I think in Malaysia since 2010. So he'd done a gap year in 2005 to 2006. He'd come back, worked here for a bit, continued to come back and forward, back and forward to Malaysia and do his stuff. He would then um, emigrate or live permanently in Malaysia as this Christian teacher and this photographer and that was what he was doing or what he looked like he was doing. But what he was really doing was making a living from 
um, indecent images of children, um, filming and videoing the rape of children. So let's talk about this background, this leading up to this, you know, arrest, the background of it really. So we know that Richard Hucknell was living the lie, really. He was pretending to be a photographer, this, that and the other. But what he was really doing wasn't he was, you know, abusing these children for his own sexual gratification and also for money. So the Australian police, this task force called um, Argos, um, they were aware on this network of paedophiles. Right? And as I've said in all these ones, when they look, you know, they're very hard to find these paedophile groups on, online because they use the dark web. Uh, but this, this group used to, I think it was called the Love Zone. It was the TLZ, the Love Zone. And there was, they noticed there was this one person on there that was continually posting videos right, of sexual assaults on children of all ages, rapes, everything. And also posting things like, um, you know, he was like, hi, yes, was his greeting. Hi, yes, you know. Uh, and so everyone would know then, oh, something's coming from him. And he would talk about, um, on this chat line as well, as he was uploading his videos about, you know, how he'd found this girl and how they were um, <laughs> so impoverished, how easy it was, you know, to rape and abuse them. And he would be saying this to these people on this um, Love Stone dark web site. He would also say things about, well, I've got this one, you know, she does as she's told, she actually did better than the dog. That's how he speaks about these people, these children that he's abusing. But I'm going to keep her. I'm not, into, I'm not into incest, and that he says on it. It's not really my thing. Meaning that he's going to have children with this girl of about nine, ten. And then he's going to abuse his own children. Not that he's into incest, you know, that's what he says. It's not really my thing. Oh well. This is the mentality of this man. This is what you're dealing with, with these predators like this. So this Australian task force, this Argos task force, couldn't really identify him because of all this distortion that he would use in his photographs. They couldn't encrypt it. These are encrypted. They, they, they couldn't get him. But what they noticed was, on his hands, there was a distinctive freckle, a freckle on one hand. Now this brings me now to where we're going to talk about this new technology now that we've, that they've been using. Now when you think new technology or anything else, like DNA when it first come out, for it to be accepted into court as evidence is very difficult, okay? You have to prove, don't you, that it works. You have to prove about a reasonable doubt that, that, that you know this is this person. You know it's this person. You know, I mean, what DNA now? Ninety-nine point nine nine percent. We know in in so many billion, it's going to be you. But at the time when it first came out, did people believe it? And with all the new technologies that's coming out now and the new ways to identify people, 
they sort of have to go through the same thing. People don't always believe the science. And this is really about the science, the same as DNA is science. You, you can't dispute it, it's there. And the same thing is what this is about. So what's happened here is, you've had this wonderful, and I'm going to say it, an absolute wonderful woman that is absolutely wholeheartedly invested in the protection of children. Really, probably even worse than I am. All she does is develop and design things and research and her team and other members, because it's not just her, it's just not her, there's a lot of people that do this, to how you get these predators not only to be caught, but to be prosecuted on sometimes the most slightest of evidence. And also, I think, with this technology, what it did in the long run, is when these perpetrators are shown the evidence in front of them, which is they cannot discount, they admit it, you see, which then saves all societies and, and you know the courts and everything, not only time but the money, but more so it saves the victims or the families having to go through these sort of trials. So this new technology or technique that I'm going to talk about now is absolutely amazing and it, you'll be seeing it more and more and more. But there's a little twist to it, you see, which I think you're going to find quite upsetting at the end of this. So um, get ready for that one. So okay, so we found now, or they found on the um, video, a hand, okay, or part of a hand with a distinctive freckle. I don't know if I've got any freckles on my hands, or if I haven't, I can't see them. But I would have certainly distinguishing marks on my hands that would put me apart or stand me apart from anybody else. We all do. So there's this fantastic woman, and her name is Dame Susan Black, or Dame Professor Susan Black. And I think she was, um, uh, I mean, she's got so many letters after her name, I can't mention them all, but I hope she forgives me for not mentioning them all. But I mean, there's so many, very, very intelligent woman. And um, she, um, I think she was um, in the Institute of Great Britain and Ireland from 2005 to 2018. She was a professor of anatomy and also of forensic um, anthropology at the University of Dundee. And I'm going to put a link actually on here for you to have a look at some of her stuff when she does her talks on these sort of crimes, on the evidence that has been used and you can see the new techniques that are being used for yourself because to tell you the truth this woman can tell you a lot more about it than I can I'm just going to go into the basic details because it's a really important case this one of how these people are now being caught and this new technology that's come out and in all my cases I try and give you more than just the case I want to give you the technology I want to give you the law okay everything about the case this is a really important part of this case so um, Professor um, Black and her team, and there's many of them, as I said before, so it can't all be her credit. So it's about this um, innovation in forensic anatomical identification of 
uh, and it's about it's designed purely to combat sexual exploitation okay that's what she designed it for it will be used for lots of different things without a doubt but really that was their main reason for designing and doing these techniques now I think how it came about was a, a little bit by accident really um, and we'll go into that now so it's about the surface and the markings on your hands for identification so move my ring out of the way so if you may have something wrong with your nail you could this part of your knuckles here are just like a fingerprint to you they are there's no one with the same one your freckles are no different they're, they're, how your freckles look wouldn't look the same on somebody else they have their individual they're identified to you they're about you you make them up everyone looks differently everyone's skin is different and it's about that sort of things so the creases in the knuckle and even the lines on our hands are like a fingerprint and so this is what they looked at they also looked at this vein um, pattern analysis so the veins on our arms and on our body are just about you no one is going to have the same same pattern analysis as you you're an individual the same as DNA and so now so if we're looking now for a predator like Richard Hucknall and all you can see because all these people usually do is cover their face don't they that's all they do they're not hiding the rest of their bodies are they they're not hiding the genital area at all actually that's one of the ones they mainly show because it's where they're you know <laughs> attacking a child it's visible so any part of the body now especially the genital areas and things like that your hands your veins is only about you so now if you are caught and as Richard Hacknell was caught, this is the sort of thing that they used to get him to admit what he had done. But before we go in to Richard's trial and stuff, I'm going to end this video one on this case relating to this vein patination. So as I said before, when you are looking at a crime um, and, you to, and you're trying to bring in new evidence and new techniques of how you know evidence has been um, collected and the data and stuff around it, you, it's very difficult. As I said with DNA, it's very, very difficult to get it for one, you don't know if it's going to work in court. You don't know if the court's really going to allow it to be admissible in court. You don't know if the jury is going to find 
your evidence or your findings um, enough, sustainable enough to, to prosecute someone without a reasonable doubt, you know. So there's a lot that goes into this. So I think there was this case, and I, I can't tell you the name of the case, and I'll tell you why I can't tell you the name of the case in a minute. But there was an English case. It was a girl, I think, about 12 years old, and that she was being um, sexually assaulted, abused by her father in her own home. She had told her mother of this assault, but no one believed her because these men are very, very manipulative. They are also usually in control. So her mother didn't believe her. Now she had a laptop in her bedroom and she thought, I'm going to get proof because the girl had had enough of being abused. This 12 year old girl that was being abused by her own father literally took charge of her own life and thought, right, I'm going to film you. So on her laptop, she set it up that she would put it on, this video on at night and film at night. Now, after a certain while, when your screen goes blank, but you're still filming, the light changes, doesn't it? Something happens in the computer. And so when the filming the next day come out and he had gone in her bedroom and he had abused her and stuff, you could see this man, but what you could really see was the veins on the man's arms because of this infrared sort of light that this computer had been filmed in. It's like you know night vision sort of thing it was filmed in. And so, yes, you could sort of see his face, but to make a real clear distinction, they couldn't really say for definite it was him, even though it was in the girl's own home and, you know, the father was there. And so Professor Black and her team looked at this footage and then they looked at the vein um, pattern analysis and it was clearly shown that that was her father by that. But don't forget, this case was the first case, really, where this sort of evidence was used. So there's always a worry. Now there's always a worry anyway, when you go to court, no matter how much evidence you think you've got, you can never be sure of a result, really, a positive result, because there's a jury, and the jury have the decision, don't they, to take. Now we've had lots of comments on here about why don't lawyers do this, why don't do that. Lawyers and the police, and some most of the time, um, can have the best case going. You can have the best investigation. You can have the best evidence. And you can put that evidence to a jury. But it's down to that jury whether it finds that they find that person guilty or not. That's not about the lawyers. That's about the jury, really. And this case highlights that fact. Now I said to you there was a little bit of a twist, didn't I, with this evidence, should I say. So this girl's gone to court, um, took her father to court for this, or the police have. They've used now this vein pattern analysis to prove it was this 
man. The court, the judges have allowed this evidence it to be put into evidence. It was put to the jury and the jury then went off, you know, and the girl was questioned, the girl was you know, cross-examined and it's a terrible thing, cross-examination. And um, the jury went off to deliberate and then come back with a not guilty verdict. Not guilty. So, usually people don't ask what the jury, why the jury have found someone guilty or not guilty. But in this case, because it was new evidence, that was put in, you know, the new techniques that were used. You know, these people that designed this technology really couldn't believe it. They thought they'd fouled this girl. They, they believed it was their fault. They hadn't done enough. You know, you're talking about a team of these scientists that really thought they was devastated for this child because they thought this is, we, you know, we were so sure that our evidence would be admissible and that they would have took it seriously and that's, but so when the jury, um, was asked questions about why, you know, because you need to know if your evidence is not going to be held up in court, there's no point using it. It wasn't the evidence that this case was dismissed over, or he was found not guilty over. It wasn't that at all. What the jury had said, the reason they found this man guilty, not, uh, not guilty for, was that the, the child, the victim, didn't cry enough. The victim didn't show enough emotion um, on the stand. They believed. They had no reason not to believe that it was his hands. But they didn't believe that he had done it or the impact on her was as bad as what she was saying. So when people say to me about what lawyers are meant to do, or what the judges are meant to do. What about what the jury's meant to do? How would you determine how a victim is going to behave? Should, why cannot a victim, these are victims, don't forget. This girl's been abused a very long time. She probably had no emotion left. It took it out of her. She's had the guts to film this man. She's had the guts to tell someone about what's happened to her. She's had the guts to go to court and face this man in court. And then a jury have come back and said that he's not guilty. Now, public opinion has got to change because it's really, we can change all the laws we want, can't we? A lawyer can go in there and fight for you as much as they can. But if a jury find that the victim isn't coming across so emotional that they don't believe the impact of what's happened to her, or she didn't cry enough, what are we saying to victims? So listen, I'm going to end this case and we'll carry on in part two. And I think that gives you something to ponder over while you're waiting for this next one to come out.